0: Bible is open. We're going to be considering those verses uh, together now. Um, If we were to look at other parts of Scripture, you would find that God's Word promises a time when there will be an ingathering of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and there will be a whole multitude of people whom no one can count who will be worshipping God together before his throne. Uh, elsewhere, Jesus describes his kingdom as that of like a, a little mustard seed, which starts out as the smallest seed, so insignificant, and yet grows bigger and bigger and bigger until birds can come and perch and rest in its branches. And it presents this picture of really the church expanding and growing and filling the whole earth. Now, if you look back over history, there are times where you can see that happening. And especially in the New Testament church, you hear, for example, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people added to the number of Christians just after one sermon. Uh, In the history of Britain, you could look back to uh, such um, evangelists as John Wesley or George Whitfield, or more recently like Billy Graham and see how they had football stadiums full of people uh, listening to the gospel and when they make the, the call for people to repent, there'd be tens if not hundreds, perhaps even thousands streaming down to give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is our experience today? And do you feel and do you see the growth of God's kingdom in the same way that you see it in the New Testament or in the same way that you see it in history? If we're honest, we don't often see it in in all that much power. For most of us, our own experience is that Christianity is really at best kind of tolerated, put up with in society as long as it goes on behind closed doors. And across the globe, what we often hear about is countries where Christians are either in the same situation as us, kind of ignored, or else where Christianity is heavily persecuted, and pastors are being killed, and churches are being shut down. And even if we can pluck out those examples where the gospel seems to be spreading and there seems to be fruit, it it would be situations uh, where the gospel is also mixed in with so many messages of the false gospel, the prosperity gospel, or mixed in with the the occult, for example, or mixed in with heresy from the Roman Catholic Church. Or else, it's after many, many long, hard years of labour. Those going into the tribes in Papua New Guinea, for example, or or Africa, who spend 25 years or more learning the language before they can present the gospel. And yes, there is fruit, but it's a couple of hundred after many decades of service. And it can cause us to question, well, where is that power that was promised? Where is the the victory? Where is the growth that that Christians are supposed to be seeing? Where is the expansion of the kingdom? And personally, in our own lives, perhaps we're often discouraged from sharing the gospel because we feel that when we open our mouths to speak of Jesus, so often it's received with uh, rejection or people just ignore us, perhaps people mock us. And we fear speaking because we fear that we won't be taken seriously. Or perhaps we fear that if we do speak, it will just close the door for the gospel at a future moment. And so we prefer to to bide our time and just wait for the, the, the unique opportunity. I know that won't be the experience of all people here, but I'm sure many can identify with at least parts of what I've described. What I want to do this morning is look at what Isaiah tells us about the servant of the Lord. And we're going to see that the servant of the Lord, his God-given task was to bring people back to God. But even so, it wasn't going to be easy for him to do. We're going to see that he faced rejection. But that that rejection didn't defeat God's purpose. Actually, it gave cause for God enhancing his task. And then we're going to consider the implications for us. As we draw parallels between the experience of the servant and the experience of us, his people. Now, in previous weeks, I've done a little bit more legwork about determining the identity of this servant. You might have noticed that in verse 3, the servant is called Israel. You are my servant, Israel. And a few weeks ago, we read in chapter 41 that Israel is called the servant. And one of the natural questions you you come up with as you read through Isaiah is, this servant of the Lord that keeps getting mentioned, is that the nation Israel? Are they the ones that are being talked about here? Is it their restoration that God is talking about? And what you find as you read through the whole thing together is that actually, yes, that was the intention for Israel, but Israel have really not lived up to that task. And you see that if you just look in chapter 48, for example, 48 verse 4, I knew how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck were iron. Your forehead was bronze. You went off and did your own thing. You didn't listen to me. Or verse 18, if only you had paid attention to my commands. And Isaiah's message to Israel is, you were supposed to be this servant. You were supposed to be the one bringing this salvation, but you failed. But God isn't going to give up on his promises. What he's going to do is he's going to raise up a new, true and worthy Israel. And Isaiah pieces together all these prophecies of what this new Israel would be like. And we find, with hindsight, that what Isaiah is prophesying about is the man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He will be the new, the true Israel. He will succeed where Israel failed, and he will be the one to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. I'm not going to do any more work than that to try and convince you that the servant of the Lord is ultimately Jesus Christ, And I hope we've touched on that in previous weeks to convince you of it. We're going to see four things about this servant. We're going to see that he's prepared in advance for a task. We're going to see that he is rejected in his task. We're going to see that he is honoured by God. And we're going to see that he is made a light to the world. First, he's prepared for his task. Particularly, I'm looking at verses 1 to 3 here. And in verses 1 to 3, you kind of get two sides of this preparation. Uh, On on the one hand, you get the the, the preparation side of it. So, uh, before I was born, the Lord called me. You see that when the Messiah comes, this won't be a a snap decision from God, but actually it will be the result of God's preparation in advance. You see that in Isaiah, he's preaching 700 years before Christ came, and yet he's given us specific details about the life of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah isn't the first to talk about Jesus Christ, but actually, right back from the time of Adam and Eve, God was promising the one who would come. Uh, the servant has been prepared; he has given a mouth like a sharpened sword. That is, he's given words to teach and to say, words that will be sharp, like like a sword that can pierce to the very soul of mankind. He'll be like a polished arrow. Uh, every other distraction, every, um, uh, every hair cut off the arrow so that the arrow can fly straight and true to its intended target. And he will be called my servant, Israel. As a result, you will display my splendor, verse 3. The servant is going to succeed where Israel failed. The servant has got this task of showing the world the, the beauty of God, showing the world God's power, his holiness, all for the purpose of drawing God's people back to himself. So that's the one aspect. that You get the preparation side of thing. The servant is prepared for this task of drawing people back to God. But also there's a, a certain concealment going on in these verses. Uh, the sword yet is hidden in the shadow of his hand. The polished arrow is prepared but then it's concealed in the quiver. Like the box that you store arrows in. And... It's as though God has prepared this servant, but he's going to wait to reveal him at the right moment. Uh, Verse 1, From my birth he has made mention of my name. So he's hidden me, and yet he has promised me. He's told told people about me. And that's part of what's going on here in this particular passage that we're reading. And it's for the purpose of ensuring the success of the servant. Don't send him too early, like a fighter. A fighter doesn't want to make his attack too early. Because he'll have too far to run to his enemy. He'll tire himself out. He do not want to leave it too late or else his enemy will already be, be upon him. And so just at the right moment, the sword will be revealed. The arrow will be shot. And the servant will achieve the task for which he has been intended. Now when you look at Jesus Christ, you see exactly these two things coming together. He was prepared for a specific task. All of his life was heading towards this one act of his death and resurrection. Every other distraction or hindrance was cut off. You wonder why he didn't marry, why he didn't have a house, in order that he could commit himself solely to the work that God had sent him to do. Of bringing salvation to the Gentiles, to the whole world, that is. And you see that, yes, Jesus was the one to bring the splendour of God's glory. Jesus was the exact representation of God. All of the radiance of God's glory was found in Jesus Christ. Jesus showed that he had power over creation, just like God. Jesus showed he had power over even life and death, raising people from the dead, even raising himself from the dead. Jesus was given those words of authority that could pierce to the soul of mankind. And Jesus came at just the right moment. You know, skeptics today have really got to wrestle with the timing of when Jesus came and how it fits so perfectly, not just with the the prophecies that were made about him, but also with world history. Uh, Jesus came at just the right moment so that uh, the, governor, uh, the Roman governor, when he was making the census, caused his parents who lived in Nazareth to travel all the way to Bethlehem so that the child Jesus could be said to be both from Nazareth and from Bethlehem fulfilling the prophecies about him. He also came at just the right time in history when King Herod of Judea was sat on the throne who hated this idea of a new king and, and tried to kill all the babies so that his mother and father had to flee to Egypt. And so a third prophecy about him could be fulfilled, that he would be called out of Egypt. How can this one Messiah be from Nazareth, Bethlehem and Egypt all at the same time? Well, when Jesus comes at just the right moment in history, everything comes together to achieve those different prophecies. You could look, for example, at the way Jesus came just 70 years before the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Giving time for the Jews to respond to the message that Jesus had brought. Giving them time to to realise him as the Messiah. But not too late so that the temple would be gone and Jesus wouldn't be able to draw the parallels between himself as the one who tears down the curtain and opens the way into the Holy of Holies. Any later... If Jesus had come any later, it would have been too late for him to achieve those purposes. And he came at just the right moment in world history when when the Romans ruled the vast majority of civilization. So that when the disciples came to share the gospel, they could travel freely and almost unhindered throughout the majority of the known world. Without needing to cross borders or or going to other empires. And travel, uh, for Paul especially, as a Roman citizen for much of his mission. Jesus came at just the right time. He was prepared for a specific task to share the glory of God in order to draw people back to God. Did he achieve his task? Secondly, we see that Jesus Christ was rejected by mankind. It appears that he didn't achieve his task, at least initially. Verse 4, I said, I have laboured to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Notice this, if Jesus did fail in his task, it wasn't because of any failure on his part. He labored. He spent himself, but it hasn't achieved his purpose. What was the result of Jesus displaying the splendor of God? Well, verse 7. For example, he was despised and abhorred by the nation. It's it's harder to pick a more appropriate word for the feeling that the nation had toward Jesus Christ. He was rejected. He He was beaten. He was spat upon. He was flogged. He was stripped naked and crucified. And while he hung dying, the very same crowds who at one time, just a few days or weeks before, had been following around, hanging on his every word, seeking the bread that he offered, bringing their sick people to him for life, they were mocking him and ridiculing him. And they called for the release of a murderer so that Jesus Christ could be killed. They hated him. They they despised him. They rejected him. And so it's understandable why the word of the servant is to say... I've laboured to no purpose. Rather than bringing glory, I've received shame. And rather than people turning back to God, they have rejected the servant of God. But that thought of despondency and despair is only the first word of the servant. It's not the end of the servant's thought. He doesn't remain in that state of despair and he moves on to thinking about how actually he will be honoured by God. The real question, in verse 4, is not what the nation thinks of him, but what God thinks of him. What is due to me is in the Lord's hand. My reward is with God. The success of my task doesn't depend upon what these people here think of me. It depends upon my obedience to God and what God will do with the work I have done. I just think what's going on here, especially in the context of Isaiah's message. Think back to that comfort that Isaiah was bringing back in chapter 40. He described how God is the one with every aspect of creation in his hands. Every, every ocean, every wave, every storm sits in the cup of his hand. And he has utter control over every action of life. God is the one who gives earth its majesty. God is not like the idols who have to receive their majesty and their glory from the gold and and the fine bits of wood and the craftsmen of the earth. And so when the nations reject the servant, when they crucify him and string him up to die, is God backed into a corner? Does God have to then say, well, I, I tried my best. I gave it my best shot, but they just didn't want my servant. No, in fact, in fact, the very opposite. In fact, God is able to, in that rejection of the servant, then pour further honour onto the servant. Verse five, now the Lord says, yes, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, to gather Israel to himself. Verse six, this is what he says. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore Jacob. I'm not just going to get you to bring Israel back to me. I'm now going to send you to bring back those of Israel I have kept and I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The servant is obedient. The nation rejects him. But God says, because of your obedience, I will expand your ministry, your mission. And you will not just bring back Israel to me, but you will bring back even the ends of the earth. Now these two aspects of the life of Jesus Christ, the the honouring by God and yet the rejection by men, are seen perfectly in the life of Jesus Christ. They're seen especially even in his words on the cross. As he was dying, Jesus calls out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His words sound very similar to the beginning of verse 4. I've spent in vain. I've worked for nothing. My God, why have you forsaken me? But Christ, in that phrase, is quoting Psalm 22. A psalm which begins with that cry of despair and and calling out on God, but a, a, a psalm that ends with a note of victory. Why have you forsaken me? Yet, I will continue to trust you. Because when my fathers in the past trusted you, you saved them, you rescued them. And yet, I will see your victory achieved. And so, later on, as he is dying on the cross, just before he dies, Jesus calls out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And God honors Jesus. Though his body dies, though Jesus is laid in a tomb, three days later, he is vindicated. He rises from the dead. And those who despised God... Uh, Those who despised the servant also saw God's honouring of the servant. They saw the empty tomb, they saw the new faith of the the disciples, and it very quickly became clear that God had sent this servant not just for the sake of Israel, but for the sake of the whole world, as the message spreads out not just to Israel, but to uh, the Gentiles too. And so we see finally that the, the servant has been sent as a light to the Gentiles. Gentiles is simply a word to describe any nation which is not Israel. It's the rest of the world, basically. The servant is a light for the Gentiles. In what sense is he a light? Two strong images come up in Isaiah. One, you could think of him as a light, like a lighthouse or like a beacon. Uh, you want to get to a place, but you don't know how to get there. And uh, perhaps you're out on the sea, uh, um, in a boat, in a storm, and, and you're worried about how you get back to safe harbour. Well, there on the land is the lighthouse, and that is the beacon. If you if you head for the light, you will get to safety. And Jesus is this light, this beacon. You want to know God, you want to return to him? Come to me. Follow me. I will show you the way to him. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, is a light like a lighthouse, but he's also a light like a like a lamp. There there are people living in darkness. You see this uh, reference, for example, in verse 9. We didn't read it, but you, you can see it in your Bibles there. Say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. Jesus is a light like a lamp, throwing out the darkness. The darkness that is not just physical. Captivity and oppression and blindness that is not just physical, but is also spiritual. The darkness of not knowing God your Creator. The darkness of not knowing the purpose for which you are made. The darkness of being damaged and controlled by the influence and power of sin. Jesus has come to be a light, to cast off that darkness. uh, And he says, I am the light of the world, Jesus does. Now the question is, how does Jesus accomplish this task of drawing in many Gentiles? How does he accomplish his task of being a light to the Gentiles? If you read through the Gospels, there are occasional instances where Jesus interacts with Gentile people, with non-Jews. But they're occasional. They're generally favourable. The Gentiles typically trust him and believe in him. Uh, The the man with the legion of demons uh, and all the demons are sent out into the pigs. He he trusts and believes in Jesus. The Syrophoenician woman who um, wants... Jesus to heal her daughter. Uh, And Jesus says, I've I've come for the Jews, really. And yet the woman persists in her faith. The woman that Jesus meets at the well, uh, Samaritan. um, Yet she trusts Jesus and so does her village. Generally, the interactions are favourable, but there's not many of them. On the whole, Jesus is reaching the Jews. He's reaching Jacob, as it were, Israel. But before his ascension... Jesus gathers his disciples together. And he says to them, you are going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my ambassadors, as it were. I'm going to send you out into the world. Go and make disciples. Bring this salvation. Not just to Jews, but to Gentiles too. And so, yes, the servant is the one, the servant of the Lord is the one who brings salvation to the ends of the earth. But he doesn't do it by his own personal interactions He does it through the work of his body, the church. He leaves it to his disciples after him. Now, you've got to be careful about how you understand the work of the church in relation to the work of the servant. It's not as though Jesus kind of did most of his work and then set up some other organisation called the church, which, right, you can carry on the work I started. And I'll be like the millionaire in the background that sort of pumps you with money and resource and a bit of encouragement and make sure your vision is on the right line. But essentially it's you doing the work and I've finished my bit. You're just carrying on what I started. That's not the relationship between the church and Jesus Christ. It's the servant who is sent as the light for the Gentiles and it's the servant who is going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And he does it through the church which is his body. The church is the body of Christ. Again, you've got to be careful about how you understand it. It's not the church is the body of Christ as though ah, Jesus Jesus and his body have gone up to heaven, so he's disappeared. We need a new body of Christ. Ah, The church can be it. And so if you want to interact with Jesus, really you've got to interact with the church Uh, as though the church is kind of a, a replacement Jesus. That's not the way the church works. Actually, the way it works is the church is the body and Christ is the head. We are joined together. We are joined by his spirit. The same spirit that Christ was given. The same spirit that raised him from the dead. The same spirit which empowered him to live the life of holiness is the same spirit that works in the church, that lives in you as a believer. And so Jesus Christ is the head and you are his body. And just as a head directs the actions of the body, so Christ is directing the actions of his church. And so as the church goes out to the world to bring the good news of the gospel, it is Christ himself, the servant of the Lord, who's going out through the body of his church to reach the world. And so therefore, it's natural to expect that the same prophecies that were made about Jesus and his preparation, his rejection, his honouring, can also be applied to the church, his body, and the way we act and work and serve in the world today. The church is chosen and prepared for its task. God has chosen the members of his body. If you are a believer, if you're a member of this church, if you've been baptised into Christ, God has chosen you. And he's put you as a part of this church. And he's ordered them uh, and arranged the members of the body just as he wants them. To achieve the specific task that he's set them for. We are like a polished arrow, prepared and set up, ready to achieve God's task. We are, our task is given to display God's splendour to the world. The church, just like the servant of the Lord, is rejected by the world. Jesus warned his disciples of this. If they hated me, they will also hate you. They won't hate you just because there's a certain type of person that they don't get on with. I'm that type of person, you're that type of person. No, it's a a closer relationship. They will hate you because you are joined to me. And you see this, for example, in when... Saul, the the Apostle Paul, when Saul was converted, Jesus speaks to him on the road to Damascus and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul had been persecuting the church. But Jesus says, you hate me, and that is why you persecute the church. And this rejection of the world is not something that the church ought to be surprised at. It's not something new. The loss of political influence, for example, the loss of cultural influence is not something new and it is not something surprising. Yes, there are big changes going on in the way the church has its place in society in the UK today, compared to 10, 20, 50 years ago, which people here might have experienced. But this change, although it's surprising and it's hard to come to terms with, and it's happening very quickly, more quickly than we might have imagined, it is not something that we should be surprised at. Jesus warned us, the world will hate you. Jesus himself was hated. And the world is only going on, continuing to hate the servant of the Lord, to reject him. It does that by rejecting the church, his body. Yet, despite the fact that the world rejects the church, the church is honoured by God. The church is the bride of Christ. It is his delight. He loves the church. He is devoted to it. Not many of you were noble or influential or wise by the standards of this world, Paul tells the Corinthians. Yet you are the people that God has chosen to display his glory to the people around you. You are ambassadors for the king. You represent him. You are children of the living God. And God has chosen to do his work here on earth, not detached from you. His spirit could just move through the earth and use his spirit and his word in total isolation from the church. But That's not how God chooses to work. He chooses to use you, his child, in order to achieve his work, in order to display his glory. And in Because of that, you can be certain that even the very best efforts of the world to silence the church, to cut the church off, to mock the church, to belittle Christians will never be enough to defeat God's purpose. Even the gates of hell, even the armies of hell could not stop the advancement of the church on earth. In fact, rejection often only opens the door For God to exalt his servant further. I was reading about Iran this week. And Christians in Iran. Iran is 8th on the list of most persecuted. uh, uh, Countries where Christians are most persecuted in the world. It's in the top 10. It's hard to be a Christian in Iran. And yet in Iran. It's the country where the church is growing fastest proportionally. The persecution that the church is suffering allows unbelievers to see how faithful these people are to their God. The darkness in which that church is situated only serves to make the light shine all the brighter. And even though the the leaders of the country and the, the, the authorities are trying to suppress the church on the ground, the individuals, the people, the families are seeing Our Christians have got some real living faith and it's worth having and we want to be in. And the rejection and the persecution that the church faces is only opening the door for the gospel to spread even further. Let's go back to the illustration I started with at the beginning. When you look at the spread of the gospel around the world, it's easy to become despondent. As though all of our labours are in vain. We, We preach, we teach, we invite, we witness and all we seem to get is rejection but you need to realise this, that the work of the church is not just the result of your efforts and my efforts. It's not just the result of the efforts of weak and distracted and uh, failing people like you and me. It is the work of the servant of the Lord. He has been prepared for this task. He will accomplish this task because it's accomplished not, uh, not, not through failures, But it's accomplished by God. The one who has everything in his control. The one who can raise up a man like like King Cyrus and even name him 150 years before he's even uh, on the throne. God has total control, Isaiah shows us. And because of that control that God has, his plan for the church, his plan for the gospel to spread over the whole world will not fail. Now, personally, for you, Or for us as a church together, I want want to encourage us. Don't hide your faith. Don't hide behind the fear that if I share my faith, I will only get rejected. I will only get mocked. I will only look a fool. Don't hide from it. Certainly don't hide from the fear that if I speak now, that might close the door for an opportunity in future. It is God who is doing his work. It is God who is going to bring people towards him through the work of his servant, through the work of the servant's body, which is the church. You don't have to be in fear of closing the door, which God cannot ever open again. God is doing his work through you. And look, our our sharing of the gospel, our evangelism, has perhaps been made more difficult during lockdown. It's not been impossible. We've had the Association of Evangelists uh, evangelistic events. We've heard about how the Christian Union have put on uh, a week which has perhaps reached more people with the gospel than uh, a week would last year or perhaps in future years. Uh, we've got ministries going on in the church. Um, there, there is the work of um, I Women, uh, the work of Gideons, uh, all got um, encouraging responses from the gospel, the work of senior moments uh, that goes on here in the church. But I know it has been difficult because we're not able to have those personal relationships, those personal interactions that we would normally have. We're not able to sit down with someone and open the Bible and and share God's word with them in the way we would normally. And so as lockdown begins to lift, as your own opportunities increase to interact with your neighbours, your colleagues at work, your family members, who know where you stand and who perhaps you've taken a back seat on sharing the gospel with, I want to challenge us. I want to challenge us in our work as a church. When we're working together, pooling our resources, I want to challenge us individually in those personal one-to-one interactions that we have. Do not be embarrassed about sharing our faith. Do not be afraid. Do not be fearful. But instead, go out in confidence. Go out in boldness. Not boldness that doesn't care about the people we're speaking to, boldness that the work I'm involved in is is not really my own work. It's the work of the servant acting through me. It's the work of the servant of the Lord acting through his church. And his success is guaranteed. Because his success is granted not by the work of man, but by the work of God. God who holds all things in his hands. I hope that's an encouragement to you, to persevere in sharing your faith with those around us. Perhaps reigniting those gospel conversations with family members, friends and neighbours. And thinking especially about how you might do that in the weeks as we come out of lockdown. Let's pray together.